0: All right, I think I, you know what you're supposed to do. Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Now, I would assume that most people reading through the Bible, when they come to Ephesians chapter 3, kind of go through it and don't really recognize what's there. And, uh, even, uh, and sometimes people wouldn't even read it Uh, Because it doesn't seem like it seems like it's complicated in what's what's being said here, but really in this passage of scripture, in all of chapter three and part of chapter two, he's uh, Paul is giving us the mystery of the gospel. It's really God telling us His secret. In our day, mystery carries the meaning of something that has not been or cannot be explained. It was the late Dr. Gray Barnhouse who used to say when speaking of the biblical term mystery or mysterion, but we should not consider the truth present, uh, presented to us in the word of God as being mysterious, but as being truths previously unknown even as well, a well-kept secret might be unknown. Instead, we ought to consider them as truths which are now capable of being well-known because the secret has been revealed. And that's really what's going on here. And Paul really spends a, a long time uh, on this point. So it must be important for us to gather. Now, wh- one day I was at... I don't know where it was but it was a gathering where people were going to tell something about themselves that nobody else knew and the only things that were passed out were cards and on the cards it says it said something about somebody but you didn't know who it was about and everybody had to kind of guess and one card came along and it said this person Don's a leather jacket and leather pants and drives the biggest motorcycle Honda has and loves to go on road trips and and everybody's like you know in this group is wondering who is this talking about like nobody knew and uh, then finally it was revealed that it was talking about probably the most uh, petite young lady who was the church secretary And she actually was uh, the one who had a leather suit and the biggest uh, motorcycle Honda made and loved to go on motorcycle trips. And nobody guessed it. It was completely a secret. But then it was made known. And, of course, you can imagine what happened after that when they saw her and talked with her. You you just didn't put them together at all whatsoever. So when we, we come to the Word of God... God has kept a secret for a long time. So the true sense of Mysterion in the New Testament is that certain truths had been completely and absolutely unknown, totally unsuspected. Then suddenly, it was whispered to one person. And the news spread like, leaves in the wind, the news spread like wildfire. And who was that one person? The Apostle Paul. God revealed this particular mystery to him. And so, this day the Lord not only tells us the secret, but he tells us the messenger and the message of the secret. He tells us the method of how he was going to bring the secret about and then he tells us the purpose of the secret. See, God is letting us know as his children what he has done. Everybody wants to know a secret. It's in our nature to want to know a secret. But this secret you can't find out on your own. Not until you read Ephesians and see what God's revealed. So, the first thing the lord wants us to know today is something about the messenger of this secret and let's look at it in verse number eight but before that let's have a word of prayer let's pray father thank you for the word of god thank you lord for allowing your children to know things that no one else could know and i pray lord that as we know these things it would encourage us even in during difficult times it would encourage us to know that God's plan from ages past is secure and it is being worked out and it will work out finally to the end and everything you say will be complete because we can trust the one who's made the plan. Thank you, Lord. We praise you for it. In Christ's name, amen. So let's look at the messenger And the message of the secret, the Lord wants us to know who this is. Now, we all know it's Paul. But I want you to see what Paul says about himself here in verse number 8 because he, he gives an expression to bear the truth about himself. Now, this is something we all need to do. We all need to come to the place where we bear the truth about ourselves. Stop lying about yourself. Stop making yourself bigger than you ought to. Or, and then, in some cases, making yourself lower than you ought to. A kind of false humility. Here's the way we ought to look at ourselves. And look at what, what he says in verse number 8. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Now, just in that phrase alone, in that statement alone, notice Paul does not say, at least here, that he is the least of the apostles. He, he said that in 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 9, where he says there, I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. No, here he is saying the least of the saints. That's important. You know why? Because there's a play on language here. It's as if there's no word for Paul to use to estimate himself after his conversion some say that he coined the term here in the greek and there's a great possibility that's the case here because he uses a very unusual word here and if we were to translate it most of your translation tr- translations translated very least but really literally it means the leaster. i know we can we don't really use those words but or the smallester like what's smaller than the smallest the smallester See, what he's doing here is he's saying there's no word to describe how I view myself after meeting Christ. In fact, what he does here is he he says, I'm going to take the lowest seat. I'm the very least of all the saints, lower than the most imperfect saint, the weakest saint, the feeblest saint, the most uninstructed saint, and even one with the most spiritual inadequacies. I am lower than them. And he means no one can get lesser than me because I'm less than the least. Paul is not pretending here to be humbler than he was. He is just simply taking an honest, bare-bones truth about himself as now a messenger of the secret, a messenger of the Mysterion, a messenger who's going to bring this message not only to the rest of the church but ultimately to the world and even now, probably on. Estimated by Paul to us in this day, how would we know that God would tarry this long? But he has. So see, you see the messenger God uses to bring this to us? He's a humble guy. And don't forget, Paul was educated. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was he was trained under the the top teachers of his day. He was a Jew of Jews. He was the one who zealously persecuted the church because of who he was. And he looks at himself now after Christ, that all that is a bunch of rubbish compared to who Christ is. In other words, Christ I mean, Paul became a Christ lover. Everything about Paul is about Christ. And so that's where we ought to be. How we look at ourselves after conversion, after coming to Christ, is that we look at ourselves as we can't take Paul's seat because he's got the lowest seat. So maybe you have to get the row in front of him. Because he's not letting you have the last seat. That's what he's saying here. That's the servant that God's chosen and made To bring us the gospel. You know what? This kind of guy is not going to mess it up. This is the kind of guy you want to bring a message like this. And then, well, there's an expression of the bare truth about the gift God's given him. Because if you notice what it says to me, the very least of saints, this grace was given. He was given a gift. All right, this gift uh, given is the balance of his humble perception of himself. If it wasn't for the grace that God gave him, he probably couldn't see himself the way he saw himself. In fact, today, he would be diagnosed with some disorder and recommended to sign himself in some therapy group and take a battery of medications and so on and so forth. You know what I mean today, right? That's the advice people give. That's the advice the church gives. You're depressed, go take antidepressants. Your kid's hyperactive, go give him brittle give and see that that's not the answer. That's not the answer. But this is not the case here because the estimate of himself does not cripple him in any way. The bare truth about himself is actually put up against what was given to him by God and what was that in verse number 8? Grace was given to him. See, he was constantly aware of his own unworthiness but only in connection with the greatness of God's grace. And that grace given both for salvation and for service, because we're really talking about service here. But He could not serve with this humble attitude if it wasn't for salvation. So the grace of God was the most delightful message that the Apostle Paul had ever heard. And he was smitten by it. He was humbled by it. And so should we be humbled by it. And remember, a gift is something that cannot be earned. That which no man can claim as his right. That which cannot be bought. It cannot be worked for. It is solely the result of God's goodness and God's grace. It is God's unmerited favor, kindness shown to someone who does not deserve any kindness at all. And that was the Apostle Paul. He deserved not grace. He deserved judgment. But grace was given to him. And grace is that which God does for mankind through his Son, And mankind cannot earn it. They do not deserve it. They cannot merit it in any other way. That's why the uh, epistle of Ephesians is often called the epistle of grace. Grace is all over this particular letter. So you see, when one is overcome by God's undeserving grace and goodness, it humbles them. It makes them immensely grateful to God for for forgiving them, for choosing them. It, It makes them see what they never saw before. See, Paul never sees himself better than others, and neither does someone who's truly humble. He understands that he in and of himself is capable of the worst sin, and so are we. He agrees with John Bradford, who said, "But for the grace of God, there go I." See, remember from chapter two of Ephesians, it's only when you see, it's only when what you once you see what you once were without Christ, can you more fully understand what God has done for you by His grace in Christ. So, what what has Christ done so far in Ephesians? He's chosen us to praise Him. He has adopted us. As his children and has begun reshaping us. He's uh, actually our persons now bear the marks of his workmanship. In Christ, we are truly new people. We have a new identity. And right now, individually, we have a new identity. And corporately, we have a new identity as a church body. And we, of course, have been given, as Paul, the gift of service, the gift of gifts. That God gives you to minister for him on his behalf. But He, the best ministers are those who are humble. Those who know where they came from and they know where they're going. They're the most used by God. They're not the most used by the world. The world despises that. But God doesn't. So Paul said, God also gave me grace to become your minister and to allow me to understand his secret by giving me direct revelation and so then the grace of God would be the most delightful theme to tell poor sinners that there is an unspeakably rich savior and his name is Jesus Christ see so message and then the Lord wants us to know too the method of revealing the secret what is the method look at verse number eight it says in the middle of the verse it says to preach there's the method the preach all right to proclaim truths previously unknown notice it says to preach to the Gentiles. The unfathomable riches of Christ. If someone gave you that as a job description, would you know what to do? That is a huge job description. But there's the method to preach, but he uses the word, not the regular word for preaching to mean to proclaim an official message. He doesn't use that word. He uses the word for evangelism. In other words, it's the word that means to announce good news. Paul was given the opportunity and the gift of God to give new good news to people. It's the same word. And in fact, this word, the way it's designed here is only used in one other place, in Luke where it, Remember, that's when the angel told Zacharias... He was going to have a son, and that son would be named John the Baptist. This is what it says. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring to you good news. That's the word he uses. So Paul thought, not only here but other places, that the gospel of God's grace was one of the most important messages that one could preach. In fact, he says that message is more important than my own life, as he recorded in Acts 20. But I do not consider my life as any account as dear to myself, and then he goes on to say, but to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Because it was not only the gospel that saves, it's also the gospel that sanctifies people for in acts 20 he says now i commend you to god and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified that's good news it's able to save you and to keep you and to make you like christ so there there's nothing else that could do that and what was the method of god getting out His secret it was the method of preaching It was the method of proclamation. And who is he to preach to in verse number 8? He was going to preach to the Gentiles. Now remember, the word Gentile is the word ethnos, which really means he's going to preach to the nations. He's going to preach to all the ethnic groups. That's who he's going to preach to. But what is he going to preach about? And this is where it gets difficult. It says in verse number 8, he's going to preach the unfathomable riches of Christ. Christ is the message. 2 Corinthians 4, 5. What does he say there? For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and not ourselves as your bondservants for Christ's sake. So we don't preach ourselves. We preach Christ. See, Christianity can never be found or laid hold of by or of anyone's self. Because our text here says the riches of Christ are unsearchable. What a loaded term this is. It means inscrutable, fathomless, inexhaustible, incalculable. Literally, it can't be tracked out or traced out. So these riches are something that no human being can find out on their own. When I was younger, I used to like drawing things with lines that connect the dots. You know, those things the dots connect the dots with the line. I used to like doing that. I don't know why. In particular, I, I like those that could not be figured out just by looking at the dots. These are the most comp- the more complex one. And the fun part was the challenge. Usually when you were done connecting the dots, you could figure out the design or picture, uh, even uh, with the most difficult ones. And uh, I like doing that. But what our text is saying is that God's plan cannot be traced down by anyone. You can't connect the dots, in other words. People in and of themselves cannot do that. They're unable. Oh, people have tried to do that, yet another other failure, and most surmise that Christianity is just like any other religion that teaches moralism and ethics or good living and even piety, yet, in the end, they remain incapable of laying hold of what Christianity is in its essence, and they surely miss seeing what our text says here the riches of Christ they conclude the gospel of Christ is foolishness it's a waste of time it's boring it's a stumbling block they miss it because it is hidden from them that's why they miss it and God designed it that way that the riches of Christ are at least two things to those who are outside of Christ they are inscrutable or indescribable they cannot be described and and secondly they're unsearchable they cannot be found out but remember if you know what's going on here in this particular passage of scripture you'll find that God's children all right are to know the mysteries that the Apostle is telling us, here, we Christians can know the riches of Christ. And we, if we reverse them, the riches of Christ, there are less, at least three things those who are in Christ know. Even though the riches of Christ are indescribable, they can be described by believers. Even though they're unsearchable, they can be found. And even though they are inexhaustible, they can, be, they can not only be found, but they, are, they were, are without fail when we understand them. So the question for us is, how much do we know about the riches of Christ? If I were to give you an exam right now, and I would say, okay, take out a piece of paper, tell me everything you know about the riches of Christ. The unfathomable riches of Christ. Write it down. Can you fill up a half a sheet of paper, a whole sheet, a notebook, a volume? I think uh, we may all be able to give the basics of Christ. But I think we must all admit that we know very little of the riches of Christ. Some have said that the unfathomable riches of Christ include the fullness of the Godhead, the plenitude of all divine glories and perfections which dwell in Him, the fullness of the the grace to pardon, to save, to sanctify everything. Everything in the riches of Christ is to satisfy the soul. And when the soul discovers it, it is satisfied. And it is satisfied overwhelmingly. And yet, what is the word of God telling us here? You can know what they are. They're yours. To even get at the riches, you have to know the one in whom they're about. In other words, you have to have a personal knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you find that Jesus Christ is the greatest treasure in the universe. See, that's when you start getting at and start opening up the bag of the riches of Christ, is when you begin to discover that Christ is the greatest treasure in the universe. It's, and you, you'll conclude like the disciples in, in John chapter 6 when Peter answered the Lord and the Lord says will you leave me too will you, will you guys leave and he says to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life we have believed and have come to know you are the holy one of God where are we going to go what we heard you speak we heard from no one We're never going to leave you. And yet the Word of God tells us about the riches of Christ. If you look right here in Ephesians over to chapter 2, you may have missed this, but look at verse number 4. It says, But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, that God is a God of rich mercy. And remember, mercy means that God will not give you what you do deserve. What do you deserve? Justice and wrath. He holds that from you. So mercy really indicates the emotion aroused by someone in need and the attempt to relieve the person and remove his trouble. That's what the Lord did, he, and he is rich in That means that he is so wealthy in mercy, it's inexhaustible. He cannot exhaust it. And then he also, in Ephesians chapter 2, again in verse number 4, or chapter 1 in verse 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. That God is a God of, who is rich in grace. And then in chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus and then it says for by grace you have been saved through faith in that not of yourselves it is a gift of God so there is a wealth of mercy and grace seen in Jesus Christ see these are the beginning of unfolding the riches of Christ now where, where do we see a display of the wealth of God's mercy and grace. Where do we see that wealth arise? Well, we see it in his birth. The infinite was made incarnate by the miraculous divinely ordered ordered circumstances of God. He came to save his people from their sin. We see it in his in his death, giving up his perfect holy life to be tried and sentenced to die as a a criminal's death giving his hands to the nails his heart to the spear he dies for his enemies the just for the unjust see christ has paid our debt so we may be free we see it in his death we also see it in his resurrection the tomb could not keep him he rises for our justification in the risen savior what wealth can be seen for while he justifies all his people by his rising, he also secures for them eternal life, guarantees to their bodies a glorious resurrection like his own, him being the firstfruits, and after him everyone else will follow. That's a promise. See, we see if we look close enough. We see the the riches that we already have in Christ Jesus. We also see it in his ascension. He goes back to heaven on his own power, leaving us here with what? The gifts to build this church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor-teachers, and then sending us the Holy Spirit to enable us to receive the message and then to do the work he calls us to do. So while Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, what is he doing there? He's interceding for the saints. And, and then he's waiting until all his enemies become his footstools so we can see the riches of Christ and everything he does in Scripture. We will see it again at the second coming. He will, at the right time, split the eastern sky and come again. See, to know Christ is to have the riches of life. It's like what Paul says, for me to live is Christ, to die is what? gain. to live is Christ, to die is more of Christ. To know Christ is to have have the greatest ambitions. Again, in Philippians, he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. His driving desire, and the driving desire of all believers, should be this. For Christ to be nearer and dearer to you like no one else. To know more of the reality of Christ than anyone else or anything in the world. And then, of course, in Ephesians, where does it lead to? When these things are taking place, in uh, Ephesians 3.17 it says this, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And then, that Christ may be our piecemeal companion. In Revelation 20, For behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. And then Christ may be our true excellency. Colossians says to him, God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentile, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. To know The love of Christ is the greatest of all riches. Even as our text says in Ephesians 3.17 So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love notice what it says in verse 18 may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled up with the fullness of God. How great, how great a happiness must it be to be the object of the love of Christ, who is the creator of the world by whom all things consist, who is exalted at God's right hand and made head over all principalities and powers in heavenly places, who has all things under his feet, and is King of kings and Lord of lords, who is the brightness of the Father's glory. There never was any such love as Christ's love towards sinners. And surely to be loved by him is enough to satisfy your soul. So when a sinner finds Jesus Christ he is like one who's been traveling in the desert and he has been consumed by thirst who at last finds a a river of cool and clear water Christ being the cool and clear water of life the sinner desires no other drink he has found that which is excellent and so great is Christ's excellency that when a sinner sees him, he looks no further and for nothing else. His heart, his mind, his soul finds there at in Christ an ocean suitable to satisfy the longing of his souls like nothing else could and ever will. so, you think you have been around for a while. You think you know your Bible. You've learned some things. You have a sufficient knowledge of the Scriptures and a good understanding of the Christian life. I hope you do, and I hope you're growing in this, but, I, but if you are still growing in the knowledge and the wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Christian virtues that are in Scriptures, then you should experience this from time to time. You turn the corner and suddenly you see something you had not known before you turn to a scripture and it starts to unfold to you the mystery of his ways and what happens next is that you begin to worship God for revealing to you the mystery of his holy will the amazing riches of Christ are true wealth nothing else is is that where you're at in your Christian walk Christ chose preaching to unfold the riches of Christ that's what he chose and all of it's good news and all of it is in this half of Ephesians it's doctrine it's <laughs> theology and we should never forget that in any case theology is for doxology the truest expression of trust in a great God will always be worship and it will always be proper worship to praise God for being far greater than we could ever imagine one man said this revelation creates rather than annihilates wonder, awe, and respect when the word of God begins to get into us that's what happens to us that we're in awe and we're in wonder of who God is. Is that where you're at? Can you give me the unfathomable riches of Christ? But there's another method in in Ephesians chapter 3 that he gives us that God brought to pass the secret and it's found in verse number 9 and it says this, not only to preach but and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages had been hidden in God, who created all things. So, in other words, the way that God's done it is to shed light on truths previously unknown that we cannot know and fully comprehend what the riches of Christ are. But God continues to shed light on those truths as we are exposed to the administration of how God's done it in the Word of God because these things were hidden in God who created all things. So, see, in other words, remember, mystery is in reference to something previously unknown but now revealed, showing up for what it is, showing something for what it is. So, God who created all things, putting into place an age old plan. And that plan was hidden in God. And at the right time, the Lord revealed it. At the right moment, he put it into operation. And this mystery simply is that the Gentiles, who were previously excluded from God's arrangements, are to be equal heirs with the chosen people, equal members and equal partners with God's promise given by Christ through the gospel. We are equal with them. So see, as as God's children, we need to say, I know a secret. I know a secret. My secret is Christ. He is in me, and I am in him. See, that is what it's about. The secret really is the Christ himself and the mission that he had towards a lost humanity. And what was the purpose of revealing the secret? It's found in verse number 10. God gives us the purpose. Isn't it unusual in some ways that God would give us the reason why He did it? He doesn't have to tell us that. But He's letting us in on the full package. He's letting us see how it all unfolded. And He's letting us know that it's the God who created the whole world who's planned it. Before anything was made, I planned this out. I planned it out when it was going to take place. I am in control of every single detail. Every atom in the universe God is in control of and has authority over. So, what is the purpose of God revealing the secret? Verse number 10. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church that the wisdom of God may be known the manifold wisdom he uses here in origin this particular phrase is referring to an intricately embroidered embroidered pattern of many colors in other words it is used of divine wisdom to speak of the richly diversified nature of divine wisdom that God has a heavenly plan a heavenly purpose even for the sinful earth. And his plan was to save a vast company of believers in spite of their rebellion. That God's plans to bring all the nations to walk in the light of his truth as it is in Christ. That the plan included the elevation of divine wisdom and the abasement of all human wisdom. I can't put it any clearer than Paul said it in 1 Corinthians where he begins to say in chapter 1 verse 17 for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel not in cleverness of speech so that the cross of Christ would not be made void and he goes on in that particular section of scripture to say this has not God made foolish foolish the wisdom of the world. And then he says, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And further he says, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then he goes on to say, Why did he do this? Be- so we don't, wouldn't boast. So no matter how talented we are, no matter matter how educated we are, no matter how wealthy we become materially or physically or knowledge-wise that we could never boast, it came from us, or the ability came from us, or anything came from us, we have to take the seat right above Paul and say, I am the humblest of people and deserve nothing that God has given me. Why? Because his wisdom is above all human wisdom. That the gospel does not come to men built on a logical basis, supported by reasoning that would have been approved by the philosopher Aristotle, nor is it expressed in terms of eloquence that it would have been approved by those accustomed custom in this day to listen to people like Demosthenes and Cicero great speakers, great orators no God says I'm not taking that route I'm going to use humble people with simple speech from all walks of life with all colors and I'm going to give them the message, the gospel and the mysteries, and they 're going to go into the world, and they 're going to turn the world upside down with the wisdom of God. so see, so having completely put aside the wisdom of all creatures, God is now able to display the majesty of his own true wisdom. The wisdom is applied wisdom, in other words, that it is not it it not only does but it includes planning the work it includes working the plan it's practical wisdom therefore the whole universe sees his wisdom now specifically notice what it says in the church you know what that means here's a bunch of humble people saved by the gospel of Christ that God chose to use to stand up against demonic opposition by preaching truth that's his purpose. This is the way God chose to do it. And why does he do it? Look at it in verse number 10 also, to display God's wisdom in the heavenlies, to the rulers, and to the authorities in heavenly places. In other words, the purpose is that all the angelic powers should know and see the complex wisdom of God's plan being worked out through the church in conformity to the timeless purpose which he centered in Christ Jesus alone. Just think about that for a minute. The, the angels, both good and evil angels, looking upon the wisdom of God and seeing what? God taking a people from this world with all the opposition kicking against the church we're still gathering we're still hearing preaching we're still desiring to grow in our knowledge and wisdom of jesus christ we still want to please the lord even against all the temptation that bombard you all through the week all the images that bombard your mind in our culture in our day even with all that you want to be holy And you want to please God. How does that happen? It doesn't happen because of your flesh or the world or especially the demons. It happens because it's the wisdom of God that he should not only save you, but sanctify you. And when the demons see that, even they are in awe. Even they don't know what to say. heavenly beings observing the church. Seeing in the church the unfolding of God's wisdom. Both good and evil angels are evidently amazed at the working of God as seen in redeemed men and women. And know once God has you, they can't get to you. Once you're God's possession, once you know that you've been elected before the foundation of the world, once you know the extent of the redemptive plan of God, not only do they know they can't get you even though they try, you know they can't get you. But you need to stand up against their tripwires, against their deception. See, that's what we're to know from viewing God's wisdom, but not only that, notice in verse number 11, here's a further purpose to show the purposes of God were accomplished in Christ, where it says, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, and here's the point here, it's a simple point, and it's right, the the hammer hits the nail directly, the point being that the Father never had any thought, plan, or purpose that is apart from Jesus Christ the Son. That Jesus Christ from Genesis to Revelation and all God's eternal purpose is the center person. There is no one else. There is no other way. And so what does that do for us? In verse number 12, it tells us, it makes clear to us that God's presence is accessible. Look what it says. In whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. I can come boldly before God. Why? Because of Christ. I have access. is that a secret to the world? Is that a mystery that cannot be traced out to the world? Absolutely. But once you see it, and once it's no longer a mystery, and once it becomes clear to you, you cannot go back. That's why people who say, I read the Bible, I went to church, I tried this, and they left it and went to do something else. They left from amongst us and went back to do whatever they thought was more pleasurable or filled their heart. You know what that means? They never understood the riches of Christ. One who understands the riches of Christ cannot go back. See, this wisdom is revealed to the earth through Jesus Christ and only through Jesus Christ. There is no other way whereby men may approach God. There is no other channel through which men can receive divine wisdom than through Christ. He is God's plan. And that plan was made in eternity. And now it's being worked out even now. So, what's the conclusion? Verse number 13. To keep the church looking at the glory of God's plan of salvation. It says, therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf for they are your glory. Remember, how was Paul able to point them to the glory shining through his imprisonment and sufferings? Well, the only way he could tell the Ephesian believers not to lose heart, the only way I can tell you not to lose heart not to give in, not to throw in the towel, not to forsake the faith. The only way I can tell you that is if you keep looking at the glory of God's plan of salvation. God's, God, planned, God planned the God-given uh, salvation that is ours. See, when we do that, we will rejoice. We definitely will rejoice. So this should be the believer's focus. This is the focus of our attention. To keep looking at God's wonderful plan of how the gospel came to us and what the gospel is doing on us and where the gospel is taking us. All those things will transform your heart and mind into what Christ wants you to be. That is, our God made the provision of salvation for us before the world began and God carefully planned each dispensation from eternity how can I be discouraged if I know that I can't be discouraged very long I guess the only thing I could do is conclude with this passage because Paul this is not the only place Paul talked about this look over to Romans chapter 16 I want you to see this he kind of ties it up And he concludes where it all heads. Romans 16, verse 25. He says this. Last chapter of Romans, verse 25, chapter 16. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages, verse 26, but now is manifest by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to the obedience of faith. And look how he ends in verse 27. How could he end? In doxology. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, to be glory forever? and ever because he is Jesus Christ is God's final revelation of the error of all things that he is the creator of the world that he is the radiance of God's glory that he is the exact Imprint of God's nature that He upholds the universe by the word of His power that He made purification for sin that He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high that He is enthroned forever with a scepter of uprightness that He is worshipped by angels that He has His rule will have no end that the joy that he gives us above all things in the universe, that he took on human flesh, that he was crowned with glory and honor because of his self-sacrifice, that he was the founder of our salvation, that he made perfect obedience by his suffering. He destroyed the one who had the power of death and hell. He delivered us from the bondage of fear. He is the merciful and thankful high priest. He is the propitiation for our sins. He is the sympathetic Christ who knows our trials. He never sinned. He offered up loud cries and tears, and God heard him. He became the source of our eternal salvation. He upholds his priesthood by virtue of an indestructible life. He appeared in the presence of God on our behalf, and he will come a second time to those who are eagerly waiting for him. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. See? when I preached in Hebrews I said this when people struggle with their faith in God it is not because their faith object has failed or is insufficient which is Christ it is because they don't have a true knowledge of God and his ways faith in God fails only when people have a faulty understanding of him so in other words if you want your faith in God to increase you must increase your knowledge of God and the only way to increase your knowledge of God is by hearing preaching and letting the Lord begin to enlighten and illuminate what you already know and constantly add to it and when he does that all you can do as God's people, is to give Him praise. It's to stand up and say, Glory to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the Father, Son, and the Spirit forever and ever. Amen. See, that's what our agreement and amen means I agree. I agree with everything that's found in the Word of God. See, that's where it brings it. It brings us to worship God. And that's why you were saved, to worship Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your great kindness to us. Thank you, Lord, for the richness of your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for letting us in on the secret. Letting us know how you did it. Letting us know the messenger and the quality of his character. Letting us know, Lord, the purpose of what you were doing. Letting us know that as we look at Christ, we see the the unfathomable riches there, that we are the wealthiest of all people. And so, Lord, thank you for these things. Help us never to forsake them. I pray, Lord, that there would be no sin that could come and tempt us away from our love for you. I pray our love for you would grow to such an extent and our desire for you that we would be that person who's found the cool and clear water to drink. And that we would look for no other. I pray that for us. If there's someone here today Lord. Who doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior. And they've been going every other place. To find pleasure. To fulfill the void in their heart. I pray that you would bring them. To your fountain. And that you allow them to drink. And find that Christ. Is everything and more. He said he would be. Lord we give you the praise tonight. This morning. For all you've done, will do. In Christ I pray. Amen.